Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Twin Bills, the Red Sox podcast from the sports department of the Providence Journal, featuring Red Sox beat writer Bill Koch, along with sports editor Bill Corey. Now, Twin Bills. Hello and welcome to this week's Twin Bills Red Sox podcast in a beautiful, sunshiny, warm day in downtown Providence. Uh, this is Bill Corey. I'm the sports editor of the Providence Journal. With me is Bill Koch, the Red Sox beat writer. Uh, Bill, in case you haven't uh, you haven't uh, heard or noticed, summer is here. It feels like it, doesn't it? Beautiful out there. It's like 80 degrees. The weekend looks, uh, my little iPhone uh, app tells me the weekend's going to be sunny and in the uh, high 70s or 80s. So uh, perfect baseball weather and the perfect antidote to a uh, to a disappointing Bruins loss last night. That was tough to watch. Oh, yeah, that, that really was. The, not only the result, but the nature of the result, yeah. how it happened in the third period. That, that's going to leave a bitter taste around here for a long time. I'm not giving up hope. I, uh, they're, they're a good road team, and I'm hoping that they're and pulling for them to push it to a Game 7, and who knows what happens in Game 7s. And, of course, Game 7 would be back in Boston. So uh, fingers crossed for the Bruins here as we head into the weekend. But this is the Twin Bills podcast about the Red Sox. And lo and behold, we have an actual Twin Bill tomorrow, so it feels even more appropriate. Right, a a day-night doubleheader with the Rays on Saturday, correct? That's right. Uh, So when I checked my Providence Journal standings this morning, Bill, the Red Sox are six and a half games out of uh, the American League East behind the Yankees. And uh, so let's go back for about a week here and um, take a look at where the Red Sox were uh, on Sunday, last Sunday, uh, when they were in Yankee Stadium, they had lost two in a row. And as you and many other people have written and said, you know, a sweep and uh, at Yankee Stadium at that at that point would have put them behind the Yankees. I want to say by ten and a half games. Correct. And you know, there was obviously still a lot of baseball left, but it's really hard to be in the mix for the division when you're ten and a half games back on June first, and there's another team between you and the first place Yankees. So that win on Sunday uh, was was crucial. Well, it was something that I learned last weekend. Uh, I didn't know this. Buster only tweeted it out, actually. I think he might have gotten it from Stats, Inc. The Red Sox have only overcome one double-digit deficit to win the division in their history. Holy cow. Only one wow. time, and it was in 1988. Yeah. Morgan Magic. That's right. Uh, when John McNamara was fired as the manager, and Joe Morgan, the Walpole, Massachusetts native, that's took right, over. Walpole Joe, and they won some twelve in a row, twelve right, and 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 a great run, like out of the first twenty five games or something like that. Right out of the All Star break, they won twelve straight. They won yep. the division by a game. Um, I think they beat the Tigers by a game. I want to say I don't remember, but the Brewers and the Blue Jays were in there as well. It was mm-hmm. four teams separated by two games. Wow. The Red Sox ended up eighty nine and seventy three. Uh, now, obviously, they got blown out in the ALCS by the A's, yeah. who were really, really good. Right, and who had a little bit of help, as we know. Well, <laughs> a little bit from uh, your home chemistry set, perhaps. That's right. um, you know, but it just hasn't happened. And, and yeah. so, historical perspective being what it is, you couldn't fall 10 and a half games behind there. It would have been 11 games in the loss column. The Yankees were on an absolute rampage at that point. They were 15-3 and three in their previous 18 games. 
and look really, really good. And hats off to the Yankees. And, and you know, you and I, we're not raised Yankees fans, so it's hard for us to say this, but hats off to the Yankees because no, they no. are absolutely too. They are banged up. It seems like every day you read about somebody else going on the IL, and yet they are rolling along. They are, they are making it work. Uh, they're getting close to getting Aaron Judge back. Uh, and they are sitting at top of the division now. Uh, this morning, uh, the standings say they are 30, uh, 39 and 22. So uh, really, hats off to them. I mean, I, I thought they would win the division this year because I just didn't think the Red Sox were going to be able to you know, do another 108 wins. But I certainly would, would not have ever predicted them being this good without all of their uh, stars. Well, Judge is a big miss for them. As we saw in that Sunday night game, Clint <clears throat> Frazier was a disaster in right field. Uh, and Aaron Judge is an excellent defensive player Absolutely. out yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frazier, for lack of a better term, he handed the game to the Red Sox. Three missed plays. Uh, yeah. Three balls hit to him. Uh, the Nunez single that he played into a two-base error. Uh, the Benintendi single that he misread and then dove for and knocked away that allowed another run to score. And then the Michael Chavis triple, which... <laughs> Since Frazier stiffed the media for comment after the game, we'll never know what he was thinking yeah. on that ball. But it's one of the worst misreads I've ever seen live yeah. in person. Um, so they certainly misjudged. The, the interesting thing about the Yankees, though, and I, I made this point on social media over the weekend, their lineup being what it is right now, it feels like the dynasty Yankees from the late 90s. In the sense that they don't strike out a lot, they put the ball in play, they're very pesky, they're very annoying to pitch to. Um, Stanton and Judge are are both great hitters, very dangerous. I won't deny that there'll be upgrades to that lineup, but it will be a different lineup from the sense that those two guys strike out a lot. There's a lot of feast or famine there in their combined last eight seasons. Stanton and Judge have struck out 29% of the time, seven different times. Wow. So you're talking about guys who, yes, they can hit a three-run homer, and they can menace your pitching staff, and they can do a lot of damage. But the way that guys like LeMayhew yeah, especially and LeMay, Urshela, what a What a great surprise he's been for them. And Glaber Torres have been going along yep. so far. Yep. There's great synergy in that lineup right now. We've seen it early on. Yep. And you just wonder if as they start to reintroduce guys like Stanton and Judge and Gregorius, whether or not that's going to continue going forward. Well, you know, uh, the good thing about uh, the Yankees being good and uh, hopefully the Red Sox getting back on track is that, you know, those Red Sox-Yankees series will mean a lot and should be great to watch. Yes. Uh, but before we hand over the uh, the entire game to Frazier's misdeeds out there, we should uh, also credit the Red Sox starting pitcher in that game. David Price did... Uh, did any, anything or everything you would ask him to do uh, in an important game in Yankee Stadium? In a place where he had been really bad mm. with the Red Sox. I think he was 0-6 in six starts with a 9-7-9 ERA. Um, had really been hit hard in, in some of those games. Uh, you know, home runs, extra base hits, uh, abbreviated starts where he went three, four, five innings or less. Right. Uh, had really, really <laughs> struggled. Uh, the other night... Had a little bit of a scuffle in the fourth inning. He got out of it. Uh, he got Urshela to fly to center with the base slowed and one out of sacrifice fly and then got out of the inning. Uh, allowed two earned runs in that inning. Uh, finished six and a third. And he was very strong. Um, you know, very confident and, and, you know, has lowered his earned run average to 2.83. Uh, dare I say, he, he's got an outside chance to be an all-star here. 
considering that his manager is picking the roster and the numbers that he's put up so far. Yeah, he's no, been so, very good. So far, he's right on track. Absolutely. Um, and he's he's really been that anchor of on that, on that starting staff that has struggled in a lot of ways early in the season. No question. And you look at the spot that they were in, and I think you're seeing continuation from what Price did last October hmm. when he buried those postseason demons, when he had a good start uh, against Houston to finish the ALCS, and he had two good starts against the Dodgers in the World Series, won three games in a row. Uh, it was completely counter to what he had done to that point in his career. The performance in Yankee Stadium uh, the other night completely counter to everything he'd done in his Red Sox career to that point. I, I just think you're seeing a guy who's always had great ability and, and always has been a hard worker. I think you're seeing that sort of confidence come through and it's really changed the arc of his career here now as he moves into his mid-30s. You know, it's interesting you, you talk about the arc of his career because I was sort of thinking about this after that Yankees uh, game. I wonder what the um, the thinking of David Price or the legacy of David Price will be in 10, 15 years when we think back. Because he's going to be with the Red Sox now. He, he's, you know, he's not going anywhere. He's, he's helped them to one World Series. Mm-hmm. He may help them to another here in the next few years. You know, but for somebody who, you know, on the field has come up with some very big wins, you know, he wasn't, he's not the most popular guy among the fans. Uh, so I wonder what we think of David Price, uh, you know, in, uh, in 2030 or whatever, you know. I think he's more like us than we would care to admit in that he is flawed. <laughs> In ways, yeah, he is sensitive. In ways, he, he is sensitive. He's not somebody who, you know, he's the uh, he's not the Chris Sale who just says everything's my fault, and you know, people like, love him for that. He, he 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 fights back a little bit, you know. And we want our athletes to just go out there and be dominant and be cyborgs yeah. and have no feelings and just destroy the opponent and take delight in doing it. That's not who David Price is. Mm. He's a little bit of a sensitive guy, for better or for worse. It makes him a better human than it does a pitcher, I would think. Right, right. Um, you know, he is has had a little difficulty in the bigger market with so much scrutiny on him, whether it be the contract or his performance. Um, some of it justified. Some of it, as we spoke about last year in the postseason, probably went over the line mm. at, at points. Some people probably took some liberties with Price, whether it be about his voice or his dog or <laughs> whatever else it might have been. And, you know, there were some shots taken at him that were well out of bounds. And, you know, unfortunately, Price would assign that blame to the collective instead of specifically sure. to the two or three media members who did so. Um, you know, that's that's an issue that's not unique to him. Other athletes have that as well. Whenever they start with the you guys – Right, it's everybody. You, you right. know that it's everybody, and it's really <laughs> right. only two people in the room. But they see it as you guys, right. you media, you did this to me, the sure. collective you. Yeah. Um, but it's really interesting. You you bring up a, a really interesting scenario there. I think Price will be remembered the way you choose to remember him. If you want to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he helped pitch you to a World Series and that that's what he was brought here to do, Really? Yeah, I mean, how can you not give him credit for that? I mean, he he, in a lot of ways carried that pitching staff uh, in in uh, in the playoffs, especially in the World Series. I mean, he was pitching, he was starting, he was out of the bullpen. He, you know, he did everything you asked him to do. So, uh, you know, I mean, I'm I, I'm going to think of think of David Price as a as a very good pitcher for the Red Sox. I mean, so far he's I think has been. Um, 
you know, he's certainly been, um, you know, I think he's had some underperforming years. But ultimately, you know, you're here to win championships, and he's it was a big reason why you were able to do it last year. So, uh, so, so let's uh, let's move ahead here and and uh, talk about um, the Red Sox going to Kansas City. And you you made a good point off air when you talked about last year um, and how the Red Sox basically just steamrolled the bad teams and helped them get to the 108 wins. And you know, this year uh, they, they're scuffling a little bit, but it was encouraging that they went into Kansas City on the road. Obviously, not a very good team, and uh, swept the series. And ha- and and Chris Sale having the kind of game that um, that you that you expect, you know. I mean, I guess it's not fair to think of somebody uh, uh, having a pitcher throw a three hit shutout, but you almost expect that from Chris Sale, and he was just a flame throwing dragon on that day, wasn't he? They had uh, three very unique styles of victory against Kansas City. The first night, they hit a ton of balls hard. They didn't have a lot of success early, mm-hmm. and they finally broke the door down. The second night, Chris Sale, absolutely dominant, uh, has thrown the ball well for a while now, just hasn't had the results. Right. Uh, I think you said off the air the phrase, buzzard's luck. Yeah, you're absolutely been. right. Yeah. Uh, and then yesterday, sort of a scrambly, bullpen-ish, <clears throat> you know, a few runs here, a few runs yeah. there. They, they scrapped one out, but that, that's what you need to do. You're not always going to hit five home runs in a game, and your pitcher's not always going to throw a three-hit shutout, and uh, it's good that they were able to kind of put it together. And you look back at last season, and you think, you know, people will say, well, it's only Kansas City. You know, they're not any good. If you look at last year, they played right around 500 against the other American League playoff teams. Right. They were 31-7 and against Baltimore and Toronto. Still amazing to think about. <laughs> they only lost them. seven games all season to those. And they're both American League East teams, so you see them 18, 19 times a year each. They were 16-3 and against the Orioles. Right. I think they were 15-4. and Against Toronto, right. they just crushed. Them. But that's what really good teams have to do. They have to Correct. be the bully when they go when they go to the Baltimore's and the Kansas Cities and win three in a row. You know, and Boston hasn't done that to this point this year. Yeah, they're, not they're often. Fairly even with the Orioles. Um, you know, they won three out of four in Toronto uh, in that most recent series. But you know, they haven't had that sort of mastery over the terrible teams at the bottom of the league. Uh, they split a series with Detroit, right? Uh, four game series at home. Detroit's not a good team. You know, by last year's standards, they would have won three out of four. So all those little things add up. If if you were, you know, you're five and two, you're six and one against Baltimore, and three and one against Detroit, and whatever it may be, that gap from you to the Yankees might be three or four games less. Right. You know, there's a lot less hand wringing if they're three games out at this point than being six and a half games out at sure. this point. Sure, absolutely. Uh, and it wasn't all obviously, as you mentioned, it wasn't all done on the mound. Uh, they've they started to see some great results in their lineup, and two people in particular who have just been, uh, well, Bogarts has been really good all year, but as of late, I mean, him and Raphael Devers have been just fantastic in the middle of that lineup. Both have 40 RBIs now. Bogarts has just been killing the ball. It's it's really good to see these young guys, and, you know, Bogarts is a veteran, but he's still a young guy, to see these young guys um, coming, uh, you know, coming into their own. That you know that and and Jackie Bradley kind of waking up a little bit and seeing mm-hmm. his bat, you know, uh, uh, spark to life here. I think that that certainly bodes well as as we get into the uh, to the meat of the season, so to speak. Hey, Raphael Devers, your American League Player of the Month for May, um, had not homered going into May. He has nine now. Yeah. Hasn't made an error since May second. Wow. So for a lot of people who at the start of the year were worried about his defense and. Who were speculating on a position change? Why don't we move him to first base? Yep. You know, why don't we, 
uh, you know, make him the DH and play J.D. Martinez in the outfield and bench Jackie Bradley. These sorts of things have their ways of, of working themselves out over time. Um, the one thing that Devers has done is he's taken a ton of extra infield before these games, whether it be with Ramon Vasquez, who is a coach who serves as a liaison between their staff and the analytics group, and Carlos Fablis, who's their third base coach. Both of those guys were major league infielders. Hmm. Uh, so very capable hands. Alex Cora has been out there as well. He was obviously an infielder in the big leagues for 14 years. So if you're an infielder who is struggling to field ground balls or the like, this is a great staff to be on yep. uh, or, or to work with. Um, they've corrected a few things in Devers' footwork. Um, it was never really the difficult plays that they were worried about. It was him being more consistent on the routine. Well, plays. that's the thing, that, 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 and that that was frustrating because he would make some great, you know, barehanded plays, uh, you know, ranging to either side. It's it, the, it was the more routine plays that you just thought maybe he just kind of mentally checked out and right. threw the ball on the ground or or over the first baseman's head or didn't come up come up with it clean. And usually, as you said, that's more mental. It's more mental, it's more consistency, it's more approach-driven than anything else. Um, You need to respect the two-hopper hit straight at you. You can't just take it for granted that you're going to scoop it up and throw it to first. You need to sort of go through the same paces, whether it's you approach the ball a certain way, you get a certain hop, you organize your feet to make a throw to first. All those things need to happen the same way every time. Yeah. And I think that's something that they've really drilled on with him. Um, you know, In particular, going to his glove side, he's always been really good and had a ton of range going that way. Uh, there's only one third baseman in the league who has made more plays outside of, of what you would consider his zone going to the glove side, and that's Alex Bregman. That guy's pretty good. Yeah, damn good. Yeah. Devers has made more plays going to the glove out of the third base range than Arenado, than Chapman. Wow, you wouldn't guess that. Those guys can really, really play. Right. They're often looked at and said, well, these are the gold glovers. They're the best defensive third baseman in the league. Mm-hmm. Devers shows as much range going to the glove, not necessarily the backhand, but for whatever reason going to his left, than all those premium guys do. Uh, it just as much. Right. So you're really seeing a guy who at 22 is starting to come into his own. You mentioned Bogarts acting like a veteran at 26, uh, a guy who debuted at 20. The other night he, he had a great line uh, in the Yankee Stadium clubhouse. He was talking about you know, how he had to take some leadership in the infield. He really is the cornerstone of that infield now, I would say, um, You know, considering – you had Michael Chavis at first base. He's 23. Devers is 22. Second base has sort of been a revolving door, and you don't know if Holt or Nunez are going to come back next year. They'll both be free agents. Bogarts is committed long-term, signed the six-year extension, really is the sort of guy who they've built around mm-hmm. in that infield. The other night he was talking about being a mentor to to, Chever, to, uh, to, Chevers, to Chavis <laughs> right. and to Devers. Um, and he said, you know, I'm a little older now. I, I got to you know, look out for my young guys or whatever. And right, he's I three years that, older than they are. I said to him, Xander, <laughs> you're, you're 26. You know, it's right. not like you're ancient. And he said, oh, sorry, guys. I didn't mean, I didn't mean to make you guys feel old. <laughs> you know? That is a good and line. And it's like, very good, Xander. <laughs> right. Very good. You got us. Um, you know, but that's the way he's thinking about himself. That's the way he's carrying himself. I think that's a great development for the Red Sox going forward. Absolutely. Um, you know, I got a kick out of I was just looking at the uh, the stats here. Uh, and as good as Xander Bogarts and Devers have, have been lately and both have uh, 40 RBIs, guess who's the number three RBI guy on the team? 
Oh, well, I'm cheating. I have it in front <laughs> right. of me, so you go right ahead. It's Mitch Moreland who hasn't played in two weeks, <laughs> which tells you how good he's been early, right? And that's going to change very soon. Yeah, and they and they could absolutely use that bat back in the lineup. Um, is he back um, today or th- this weekend? The the thinking is that they're going to activate Mitch Moreland later today. Mm-hmm. We're recording this on Friday. Yeah. Um, and this is going to set up the Red Sox lineup, I think, very nicely mm-hmm. going forward. Um, the left side is secure in the infield with Devers and with Bogarts. Those are everyday players. You're going to be able to platoon Brock Holt and Eduardo Nunez at second. Both of their bats have woken up mm-hmm. here. Uh, mm-hmm. Holt is on a seven-game hitting streak. Yeah, Holt's, Holt's looked really good. He looks like he's gotten past his, his obviously, eye and then shoulder issues. He's healthy, and he mentioned the other night in Kansas City that just that security that comes with knowing that you're healthy makes you that much more comfortable right. at the plate. Right. Nunez has started to sting the ball a little bit here recently. Yeah, he's got that whip swing that, you know, sometimes if he misses, it looks silly. But boy, when he connects, you know it. You know, and, and Moreland coming back, I think, will open the door for them to maybe settle Michael Chavis a little bit. Because mm-hmm. uh, he's scuffled you know, maybe over the last week and a half. The book is sort of out on him on how to pitch him Absolutely. a little bit. Absolutely. You go up and away a little bit. He's got that hole in his swing. And, you know, that happens to every new uh, major leaguer the, the you know the pitching and the scouting is so good they figure out what you're not good at and they hammer that until you figure out either don't swing at those pitches or figure out how to hit those pitches you know and there were there were a couple of bats in Kansas City where he got a couple sliders out over the plate those were pitches that he was hammering when he was called up and he pulled off a couple fouled them off you know might have hit a couple pop-ups and you're thinking to yourself he could probably use a couple days off to get right and I think Moreland coming back and being able to hit against right-handed pitching, that might give Chavis a chance to work with the hitting staff there, whether it's Tim Hires, the hitting coach, Andy Barquette, the assistant hitting coach. They've proven to be very proficient at getting guys on track and sort of you know, manipulating their swings to the point where they're going to be able to be effective over a long period of time. Chavis hasn't had, he hasn't really had much time to work with those guys on the side. He's been playing every day. Well, that's the thing. He just right. came up. Yeah. So this Moreland being activated comes at the perfect time for him as well and should settle their first base situation pretty nicely, uh, you know, at least over the next couple of weeks. Right. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, they head into this weekend against uh, Tampa Bay, six and a half back. Tampa Bay happens to be the team in front of them. So they clearly have a good shot here of closing the gap and maybe getting themselves into second place. Um, the standings say that uh, the the, uh, the Rays are a game and a half behind uh, the Yanks, so it's like five games uh, ahead of the Red Sox. Uh, and then the Red Sox welcome in, I want to say, the Texas Rangers, Correct. who are right now sort of battling for that second wild card spot. So it's it's kind of like an important weekend and an important week as they move forward here. Um, and it's good that they seem to be hitting their stride a little bit, both pitching-wise and hitting-wise. Um, so, I mean, my expectation here, and here I go again making a prediction, my expectation is that in a week we're going to see them pretty much a lot I don't know if they're going to be in second place but they're going to be a lot closer to Tampa Bay it's a good homestand for them uh, they've played the fewest amount of home games in the league uh, at yeah this they, point. they I think it's only 26 they seem to be like on the road forever here the in the first few months of the uh, the season that opening road trip the 11 games on the west coast that really started things off on the wrong foot right Fort Myers West as we have dubbed it that's right <laughs> and they've they've been playing catch up ever since uh, but at this point they're four games over 500 which matches a season high mm-hmm. um, you know and they're looking to get to as Alex Cora said earlier on we were looking to get to 500 then 5 over then 10 over 
then 15 over. You take it in sort of five-game groups. Yep. You know, if you can go six and one in a given week and gain five games, that's a great week. Sure. Wonderful. Yep. Um, you know, and you could take something like that against Tampa. You got four games here. You got four against the Rangers, a, a team that's been a little bit of a surprise. And, you know, everyone looks at Texas and they think, well, they'll probably sell you know, leading up to the deadline. So maybe you want to get them now and, mm. and sort of push their heads down a little bit, make them sort of sell off a, a little earlier. That's mm-hmm. one less contender that you have right. for the wild card spots if for some reason you can't come back against the Yankees. Um, you know, you're looking at a group that includes like Texas, Oakland, Cleveland. Those are the teams right now that you want to watch in the standings until you cut the gap a little bit more to Tampa and to the Yankees. You You need to be looking at those two wild card spots. So these are some critical games coming up for Boston, and it'll be welcome the fact that they're at home. Uh, and you already mentioned uh, they should be benefiting by the return of Mitch Moreland here this weekend. And the other, and another uh, player who appears to be fairly close is Nathan Avaldi. What are we What are we hearing about Avaldi and his uh, and his comeback? He threw another simulated game in Kansas City on Tuesday. Uh, I watched him throw in New York. I think it was on Friday. Mm-hmm. And he looked great. Um, you know, he faced Brock Holt and Michael Chavis. And I was talking with Chavis afterwards, and I said, uh, it's the first time you faced Evaldi, right? Because Holt, oddly enough, was 4 for 12 against him between his time with the Yankees and the Rays and you know whoever else. Mm-hmm. Holt had seen him a lot. Um, Chavis hadn't seen him, and I guess he hadn't hit against him in spring either. And I said, uh, you know, how was Evaldi? And he said, pretty firm. He said, he throws hard. <laughs> and I said, well, we all know that. And, and he said, yeah. And he threw me a cutter. It was down and away. He said, I had no scouting report. I had no idea. He said, he threw me a pitch down and away that looked like a fastball, and then it just jumped away from me. Oh. He said, and I turned around to, to Mike Brenly, who's the bullpen catcher, and I said, what the heck was that? <laughs> he's like, that was his cutter. Wow. And he's just like, whoa. Like, he looks like he could pitch in a game right now. Right. Uh, and I think the Red Sox will, will bring him along. You know, I would expect Alex Cora to say later today that he's probably going to go on a rehab assignment and make a start. Right. I think that'll be his next work. Uh, I, I think two sim games is probably enough. You'll send him out there with a real game, real scoreboard, real opposing batters, try to have him go three or four innings, then maybe four or five innings, yep. and then you activate him. It, it would not surprise me if by two weeks from now, when we do this podcast again, when they're home from Minnesota, would not surprise me if they're activating him by then. Hmm. Uh, well, <clears throat> he certainly will be a welcome addition uh, to, to the uh, to the pitching staff. Um, and um, while we're talking about pitching, if you were hoping for the return of uh, Craig Kimbrell to the Red Sox, and unfortunately you're, you've been disappointed, uh, he signed this week, gets a three-year, $43 million deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of what uh, I think people expected he should get. Certainly not what he was demanding. Uh, what did you uh, What did you make of that when that when that went down this week? And we kind of expected it would happen now that the draft pick compensation was had expired. Correct. We had the draft, which means the Red Sox extending their qualifying offer and getting a compensatory pick had Kimbrel signed elsewhere. That expires right the day of the draft, the first day, which was on Monday. So Kimbrel signs with the Cubs. It's a three year deal. It's ten million this year. 16 million each of the next two years, and then there's an option for 2022. Um, from what I saw last night, I think it's a vesting option. I'm not sure what it's based on. Usually, if it's a closer, it's based on games finished, um, you know, which would mean that, you know, let's say just 
for the sake of argument, he finishes 100 games in the next two and a half years. Mm-hmm. That option vests for probably $16 million for 2022. Uh, the $43 million total comes from, it would be a $1 million club buyout mm, if that I option see. doesn't vest. So um, he would at least get that. Right. He's due at least 43 yeah. In Kimbrell's case, this was a deal that he could have signed in January, in February. Yeah, it's a far cry from what he was demanding, that's for sure. When he comes out, and his agent comes out at the winter meetings and says, we want to start at six for $100 million, it's just such an, a ridiculous demand that no team went anywhere near him. It made him completely radioactive. I think the Red Sox had it in mind to move on from him in the first place. Probably, but um, certainly when you hear that demand, well, I, I, <laughs> it was I, easy enough to, I, to move on. I, to move don't on. Think, I don't think that they had it in mind to pay Kimbrell that much as a 30-year-old guy who's you know put on some miles right. um, and as someone who is pretty dedicated to just pitching the ninth inning. Right. I right. think you've seen with their usage of Matt Barnes this year what they have in mind for their premier bullpen arm. Craig Kimbrell's not pitching the seventh inning and he's not pitching the eighth inning. He's only pitching the ninth inning against any juncture of the opposing lineup. It could be against six, seven, eight. The game might be over by then. Right. You're facing the weakest guys. You would want him to face two, three, four when they come up. You have Barnes for that. So are you really going to pay for a quote-unquote second arm? Are you going to pay you know, $14, $15 million when you have Mookie Betts, J.D. Martinez, all these other considerations to make? You don't want to sign a deal that's going to hamstring you from keeping those guys. So you're at a point where Kimbrell goes out on the market and doesn't have a lot of engagement and doesn't drop his demands. And he ends up sitting out until June. And it's a, a colossal waste of his time of the resources that he could have gotten. Uh, and it's, you know, maybe sort of a lesson to, you know, other free agents who are going to go out there that over the last two or three years, the market has changed and, and teams necessarily aren't going to overpay for what they consider to be a, a quote unquote limited skill. Especially somebody who's 30 years old and has the miles that he's got on him. But, you know, in a way, this is not a bad deal for Kimbrell because he ended up with what most people thought was his value. He, he, he's rested, basically. I mean, I assume he was working out to some degree, but he's rested. He's sure. starting the season, you know, two or three months in. Uh, and he's pitching for a National League team. Mm-hmm. So, he's you know, he's going to always have kind of a lesser lineup to face. So, in some ways, you know, I think he did okay for himself. Obviously, he didn't get what, what uh, was he or his agent were asking for, but it's not like he had to settle for a one-year deal. No, he his deal that he ended up with is perfectly fine, and it's right on market for an elite closer. If you look at someone like Wade Davis when he signed with the Rockies, it was three for 51. Um, you know, the Yankees completely overpaid for Raldis Chapman, but that was five for 86, I think it was. Yeah. So, you know, dollar-wise, you're, you're right in there mm-hmm. at, you know, 15, 16, 17 million. You're, you're right about where you should be. Um, it's just that you look back and you think that all this could have been avoided. Sure. You could have had three option four in January, three for 48 with an option for a fourth year, and he could have been in someone's camp, and he could have been closing games all the way along and adding on to the 338 career saves that he has. Uh, he wants to take down Mariano Rivera and, and be the all-time saves leader and be in the Hall of Fame. That's his goal. Right. Um, and he's given away two months and 60-odd games uh, right square in the middle of his prime. It, it just seems like there were errors in judgment made along the way here. Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, if he had come out and, to the Red Sox and said, hey, I'll take three for you know, 15 a year, 
you know, I think they would have entertained that at least. They weren't like, they weren't going to entertain, you know, six years for a hundred for I, sure. I, I think they would have at least returned his calls. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, so the other big free agent pitcher who uh, sat out most of 2019 also got a deal this week, and that's Dallas Keuchel. Although he did not get a multi-year deal, he took a one-year deal signed with uh, the Atlanta Braves uh, for I want to say 13 million. I think I read. Is that about right? Uh, one-year deal, and um, I don't know, that that one surprised me a little bit. Uh, now I guess he's just figuring. Well, I'll take a one-year deal. I'll show. I'll prove myself, and then I'll go back out on the market. But he was he was somebody else who had a ridiculously high uh, demand uh, in the off season. We'll go back to Buster Olney, uh, who tweeted out probably a week or two ago what Keuchel's initial demands were uh, last November at the winter meetings: <clears throat> six to seven years. 150 to 210. How old is he million. again? He's 31. Yeah, uh, come on. 31. <laughs> uh, if you if you want to look at an example of a pitcher who makes seven for 210, Max Scherzer. Yeah, but he didn't sign it when he was 31, did he? No, and which guy would you rather have? Oh, my God, of course. It's not take, even close. Take Scherzer 10, 10 out of 10 times. So you're looking at Keuchel, a guy who comes last year off a 3.74 ERA. He gave up 211 hits, which was the most in the league. Uh, he's less than a strikeout per inning guy. Fastball velocity is around 89-90. Hmm. He's pretty much running the opposite of the trend in the game right now, which is power, strikeouts, true outcomes. Hmm. Um, limiting contact, not forcing contact. Uh, you look at guys who are brought into the big leagues and, and playoff pitching staffs and whatever else. Teams want to go bullpenning, yeah. and they want to strike people out. Um it's basically everything the opposite of what Dallas Keuchel does. <laughs> um, you know, so you look at his his 2017 season, he was good. His 2015 season, he was good. 2016, he was mediocre. And 2018, he was mediocre. Right. And, you know, that postseason start against the Red Sox last year, I would have bet my mortgage on Boston in that game. Because <laughs> he doesn't have enough yeah. to get a lineup like that out right, right. twice. And certainly not three times. Um, you know, so for him to, to come out and say, oh, I want six for 150, it was just ridiculous. He, he completely poisoned his market as well. Uh, you know, now he, he wants to have a one-year prove-it deal with the Braves where another guy who's gone in the National League, which right. is a good move, you're facing a little bit of a lesser lineup, mm-hmm. um, that's probably where he should market himself for 2020 and beyond as well. Uh, I think he should probably try to stay out there. You know, maybe pick a big ballpark, like if the Giants are looking to make a splash or, or something. You know, if they move on from Madison Bumgarner and they want another pitcher with some pedigree, that's a great pitcher's sure. park. You could go to the Giants. Um, you know, you could go anywhere in the NL. But it wasn't going to work in the AL going forward, not with average stuff. Um, you know, and I, I just wonder what his end game is in terms of What's he going to ask for next year as a 32-year-old? Well, well, it depends on what he does this year. But even if he pitches well, you're going to come out and say, I want four or five years to take me all the way to 37? It just seems ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, so um, before we wrap up this edition, let's touch upon uh, the Major League Baseball draft, which uh, you had been following this week. Uh, now, the draft in baseball is a little different because uh, you know, unlike basketball and even football, um, you know, you don't get to see these guys right away, typically. I mean, they're, they're not somebody that you know, because you, most people don't follow college baseball all that closely. 
um, or high school baseball or high school in right in states this case. that you've never seen. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, major league teams draft these guys and stick them into their minor league systems and they ride the bus in, in, in single, double and triple A. Eventually, hopefully they reach the majors, but that's usually three, four, sometimes five years out. Um, but the Red Sox uh, seem to do okay in this draft. Why don't you uh, sort of give us a quick breakdown of some of, of their uh, top uh, few picks here? Well, the top pick is a guy named Cameron Cannon. Uh, he's an infielder from the University of Arizona. I love the, love the name. He is either a good infielder or a pitcher name. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and he, he fits the bill. Uh, you know, keep in mind now that the Red Sox first pick was at number 43. It was in the second round. Uh, they were docked 10 spots because they went over the luxury right, tax. Right, and I, I, right. I kept thinking, well, they're picking last, so that means they're picking like around you know 32, whatever it was. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, yeah, they're, they're picking 43. And how did that happen? But that's how it happened. So you're, you're looking at three additional spots in the first round for three teams who did not sign their first-round picks last year. Okay. They award them a second pick. So they all get to pick again before the Red Sox pick. So the Red Sox would have been 33 yeah. at best. They end up 43. Um, you know, so they get docked those spots. They end up with Cannon, who you know is is a gap to gap guy, uh, a doubles hitter primarily, uh, someone who has a little bit of pop. He, he's a little undersized, five ten, one ninety. Um, you know, but someone who who they project as a hitter mm. uh, and probably a utility sort in the infield can play a little third base, a little second base. Uh, you know, a maybe, Michael Chavis type. Well, I would say more like a Brock Holt type. Okay, um, you know, someone who could play a corner outfield in a pinch. Mm. Um, you know, his Chavis just with his raw power is is someone who's on a, a different scale. And they they took a couple of those guys later on in the draft. Right. Um, you know, but Cannon in his case. Yeah, a third-year guy at Arizona, probably someone who they'll sign. Uh, the other thing you need to think about with the Red Sox is they had the smallest bonus pool uh, in this draft. It was just shy of $4.8 million. The slot value for Cannon is $1.7. Uh, the second pick was a high school shortstop from Puerto Rico named Matthew Lugo. Uh, you know, someone who is at the Carlos Beltran Baseball Academy, mm-hmm. someone who Alex Cora knows. Um, sure, Puerto you know, Rico. Yeah, you know they they have connection there. Uh, you know, and then it would be, you know, you're probably looking at at overpaying for him. Um, you know, someone who you'll need a little extra signing money for. Uh, you know, so for the Red Sox to go down and, and get those first two guys was good. They went the college route on day two. Uh, they took a lot of pitchers on day three, starting with Sebastian Keene, who's from North Andover, Mass. Um, you know, so you're looking at pretty typical draft for the Sox. A lot of college guys who you can sign, get into the system. Then you threw some Hail Marys on day three, some guys with some upside, and you know, hopefully some of them pan out. And before we wrap up here, just a quick uh, note on the Rhode Island high school and uh, college players that were taken in the draft. Real quick, Bill, uh, give us a rundown on the Rhode Island connections in the draft. Uh, Proud Space and Fioli in the 11th round, a left-handed pitcher who's at the University of Connecticut now. Uh, Chris Wright from Cumberland, who uh, was one of three players from Bryant selected. They also had Ryan Ward and Jimmy Titus. Uh, 36th round Tucker Flint, outfielder from Bishop Hendrickson. He was the Gatorade Player of the Year in the state this year. He's committed to Maryland. I would expect him to go to college uh, and be someone who we'd look at again in another three years. Big body, physical, very talented. Uh, and in 37th round, a right-handed pitcher named C.J. Dandino, who was at LaSalle, redshirt senior at Connecticut, Fioli's teammate. Um, those two have played in a very good program you know, the last three years. Uh, a UConn team that's been in the NCAAs twice. 
Um, you know, so very strong year for the local contingent, and uh, you know, few names there worth writing down and, and tracking as they make their way through the minors. And we'll do that over the next few years. Uh, and this weekend, obviously, Red Sox Rays. Bill Koch will be at Fenway all weekend and all week. Bill, we'll do this again in a week. Thanks again. All right, Bill.